Stephanie. And I'm Summer. And you're listening to Broke and Broken. <laughs> because we're both. The podcast about living your best life by getting real. Hey, broken people. Um, you just get me again. Um, Stephanie is still out sick. Um, hope she starts feeling better. Um, and, you know, wish her all the best on that. But t- this week we have Jen. She is a transracial adoptive parent and also a foster parent. And she agreed to sit down and talk to me about all that and how complicated it can be. Um, I originally met Jen online about 15-ish years ago. Um back before what we have as social media today when it was actually message boards and I went there looking for information about adoption because we were starting the process um, to foster and adopt and I actually learned a lot about transracial adoption from her which was not something that at the time I anticipated even being involved in but I found it really interesting because she worked so hard to educate other white parents who were seeking to adopt transracially about the importance of having a good understanding of what they were getting into and prioritizing the needs of the child, much to the chagrin of some of these people who wanted to pretend and you know that they don't see color and ignore it as if it's not going to matter to their child. So I really wanted to talk to her about that on the podcast because she now has 20 years of experience in doing this well you'll hear her story so without further ado here is Jen I'm Jen I have um, 10 kids Uh, currently there are seven in our home so um, two of my children are biological and six um, were adopted or are in process of adoption and two are foster children. So that brings us to a total of 10. Okay. And one thing, uh, your family is like mine. We have these little rainbow families, <laughs> thanks to transracial yes, adoption. Absolutely. So now one thing, when I, when we first met, you only had the four boys. Right. So, but they're really close in age. What's the age spread on the, on them? Uh, the, the four of them um, are all within five years. Um, we had a biological child first, and he was almost two when we adopted our sons from Missouri, and they were then ages three and four. Um, nine months after that, I um, quite accidentally found myself pregnant, and <laughs> so we went from one child to four in 18 months. <laughs> wow. And that was the four boys, yeah. So my oldest two are African-American, and the next two are um, Caucasian, biological, white. Right. (laughs) So you adopted from Missouri. How did you actually get matched with them? Because that's one thing I think a lot of Americans don't realize is that international adoption works the other way, too. (laughs) That we don't just have people adopting from other countries, because Jen is from Canada, so. Right. We live on the west coast of Canada, so it's... um, kind of a strange thing that we were able to adopt from foster care. Lots and lots of um, African-American infants are adopted to Canada through a variety of adoption agencies in the U.S., and quite often in those cases, the expectant moms um, choose Canadian families um, because of the perception of less racism up here. For us to adopt out of foster care in the U.S., um, we happen to stumble upon um, a social worker in St. Louis County, Missouri, that had already sent kids to Canada, and so she was aware of the process. Okay. We were specifically 
actually looking to adopt um, a sibling group. We were prepared for adopting children of African heritage um, from a variety of different countries. We had originally looked at Haiti and um, kind of around where was the greatest need. So we were particularly looking for um, a sibling group and of children that may have a difficult time finding an adoptive placement. So when we talked to the social worker in St. Louis, um, she was ecstatic that we were willing to be considered for boys um, over the age of two and siblings that were also black because they had a difficult time recruiting families. Right. They get hard to place. Is that also why you specifically were looking for a sibling group because the it's more difficult to place them? Right. Exactly. And um, we really weren't thinking ever that we would be adopting again. And I had read enough to understand um, as much as you can before adopting how important it is for a child, if at all possible, to have somebody else in the family that looks like them. Mm-hmm. And so that was really important to us that if we were going to adopt um, and it was possible for our child to stay with their sibling, that that was a value that we um, really appreciated. So um, that is why we pursued a sibling group adoption. Additionally, because we could have biological children and knew that, at the time I really wasn't interested in um, taking a baby was my logic at the time from somebody who had never had a baby and wanted to do that experience. I had had a baby, I had done the newborn, and it wasn't a need for me to... um, to replicate that experience with an adopted child. Right. Now, when you expressed interest in who, the boys that later became your sons, did your right. did the caseworker have any questions about that? Because I don't know if you remember when I was matched with my first daughter. Um, right. The tribe, you know, we're both from the same, tri- same tribe, and the nation is actually the one who chose us for her placement, but the state caseworker was very um (laughs) um I don't know what the word is she just kept saying you need to see her first and I'm like what do you mean she said it repeatedly so I realized it was a deliberate word choice and it turned out what she was um trying to infer without saying was that they had had multiple placements presumably with white families that would not take her because she was quote too dark which actually made me angry, and I'm pretty sure I yelled at the woman on the phone, but um, did you yeah, have I any mean, of that sort of I can't questioning? even imagine. I mean, on, honestly, the home study preparation that we did, um, I mean, to take a step back, we were mm-hmm. really young. We started the That's process right. when I was 24, and we happened to luck into a social worker who was a transracial adoptive parent uh, as well. And I'm eternally grateful for her because she put us through the ringer in um, every possible way and required us to do a whole lot of proving ourselves and that we had done reading. So our home study specifically stated um, all the education we had done around being a transracial parent, particularly to children of African heritage. So black kids, we were, um, that is what we had prepared for, was to actually parent. We were specifically looking to adopt black children because we felt that that was where the greatest need was at that time. Um, Now, is that typical that they will look for that or is that just that caseworker? In my experience, when I um, talk with other adoptive families, I think the Canadian system requires a far higher level of education. 
for home study, uh -huh. um, particularly when it comes to transracial adoption and preparing for openness because... Um, They're right, that's the a whole other system, level. <laughs> that's a whole other level. The Canadian system doesn't really allow for closed adoptions very often. Oh, um, uh, how do we make that happen here? <laughs> I know, I know. And it's very much child-centered, right? Like, so it's not about how... Um, whether or not you feel you're going to be a good enough parent for that child, but how can you make sure that that child gets the home they deserve, right? Okay. So doing lots and lots of education. So our home study, um, that is actually why we were chosen. Um, in Missouri, they do what's called a staffing, and they come mm -hmm. together. So the foster parents and social workers, um, the adoption worker, um, a child psychologist, um, various other people that have input, and they examine everybody um, who's applied for the children, and then they make what they believe is the best case scenario. So um, in an interesting twist, we were actually chosen um, over a black single parent um, because of some of the specific needs of our kids. Okay. And, um, you know, we've, we've talked about that a lot because there was a real cost to our kids being placed into a white family and a white family internationally. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I, I guess it was the right decision for our kids. I mean, they're now 23 and 22. Um, my oldest son is um, just finishing up his double degree in sociology and psychology and oh, intends exciting. to go into law. And my second son is starting university in September, and um, he's you know living independently, successfully supporting himself, and has done really well. So at the end of the day, I guess it worked out. <laughs> right now, do you, I know that you had taken them a few times to Missouri to see family? Do they still have contact with any of their family? Uh, they do. I'm on Facebook with everybody, and my oldest son has almost daily communication. Our boys um, have a full biological sister that was born three years after they were adopted and mm -hmm. raised um, in extended family. The family situation had changed a little bit. And so because of that, um, at least for her early childhood, she was raised within the family. Um, she's ended up being permanently in a different placement now. Okay. But my oldest son and her have regular contact. My second son was always slightly more cautious. Mm -hmm. And he has them on Facebook and Instagram, but chooses not to have any direct communication. I, however, have. Um, we found and looked for their birth family um, very shortly after the kids were placed with us. Mm -hmm. And that was before the days of Facebook. You think that was right. the late um, 1900s, early 2000s. And um, so it was kind of a interesting venture trying to find people from Western Canada when they were in Missouri and mm -hmm. uh, but we did it and established a relationship with them so I have a you know a positive very positive relationship with that's them and good. we are now you know 19 years after adoption so right that's good because our system here as you know is very <laughs> different we right. not only is openness not an expectation they put many roadblocks in place to make sure that doesn't happen um also yeah. we, there is absolutely no education requirement or anything as far as transracial adoption they pretend that is not an issue here which yeah, can be quite detrimental to the children because it, i mean it it permeates every single day of your life. The reality is, is that if we don't see color, we're denying for our kids um, 
the capacity to parent them the best that we can because right. for our kids they will experience life as a racialized person every single day and um if we if we don't have the skills to help them walk that we fail them right. so i'm very very thankful for that in terms of openness i mean my my older boys had experienced pretty horrific levels of abuse mm-hmm. and mental health issues with their biological parents and if anybody had excuses to not want openness it probably was us mm-hmm. um however what it took for me and um and thankfully i had def- done enough reading and talking and reading blogs and um speaking with adult adoptees was him looking at me at the age of four and saying um i don't think i was ever a baby Aww. And he had no proof that he ever had been a baby, right? Oh, I remember that. No pictures. Yeah, we don't either for either of my girls. Right. And and because of that, that was my initial motivation. It wasn't about making things easier for his birth mom. It wasn't about making things easier for me. It was about making things better for my son. Mm -hmm. And um, as his birth mom and I established a relationship, and she did send us some pictures that she had, which weren't many, but she did send us some. And I... um, I realized that if contact with me and knowing that her boys were okay provided her some comfort that she could then heal to the point where she could become somebody that they could be proud of one day, then it was worth every effort. And mm-hmm. there were ups and downs, absolutely. Right. But uh, we were able to establish a relationship of mutual respect. And I, th- I believe it brought her great healing, and I absolutely know that it was essential for our boys as the years went on. Yeah, unfortunately, we I've offered that door, but I I don't know. She's not reached a place of healing where she can, where she feels like she can do that. So right. I don't know if that will ever happen. <laughs> um, and and you know, I went many many years of contacting my boy's biological father, um, mm-hmm. who never responded. Um, not for many years. He did, finally did, and we did establish a strong relationship at that point. But um, for me, it was about being able to look my kids in the eye and said, I see that this is your need. I've tried. Mm-hmm. Versus, I'm sorry, that's too uncomfortable, or we'll wait, or whatever. It, they needed it um, when they were kids and adolescents. Right. And I, you know, as they went through the identity seeking and all the upheaval that goes with being. Um, kids with trauma and attachment breaks and adolescence and all the things that that mm-hmm. brings out right. and anybody who's walked that journey knows exactly what I'm talking about mm-hmm. um, I think if we hadn't have had that kind of strong honest relationship from the beginning we may not have survived as a family mm-hmm. but my kids knew that I loved them enough to also love and support their biological family and their need to understand their connection to them. Right. And one thing that I tell, what I tell people when I talk about adoption that, um, usually gets me strange reactions is that all adoption is born out of loss. Absolutely. Would you agree with that? I do. Um, you know, people, often make comments to us that oh your kids are so lucky Mm -hmm. Um, they're lucky to have you and you know my my kids do live a really wonderful life however at the same time every single one of my children has experienced more loss Mm -hmm. uh, than most of us have ever experienced in a lifetime they've lost the connection to their biological parents they've lost connections to growing up with biological siblings they've lost um the ability to believe that the world is a safe place and awful things don't happen. They've lost their nation of birth for some of my kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are uh, enormous losses that most people don't 
understand. So yes, we are blessed to be together and we do have a family that's full of love and we do lots of fun things together. But that, um, we were joined together out of loss and huge trauma that has lifelong impacts. You know, my job, my responsibility as an adoptive parent is to mitigate those losses, but um, you certainly can't erase them. And to consider them in how you deal with the children too. That's the big um, issue that I'm having with my family right now is one of my children has extensive trauma and you can't, you can't deal with her and communicate with her or attempt to guide or discipline her in the same way that you can a child who has no trauma background. It's simply not going to work. Yeah. And, you know, I, when I talk with other families, I often, um, try and emphasize relationship over rules and meeting our kids where they're at and understanding that their brains, um, have been altered permanently because of trauma Mm -hmm. and that need to protect themselves is always going to supersede their willingness to trust us because of their previous trauma. It's a tough, tough lesson and it took a fair amount of experience on my end (laughs) doing things the wrong way and listening to good advice from other parents and counselors that sometimes we need to completely alter how we parent and um I was a good parent but I was a routine and structure and by the book sort of parent and Mm -hmm. sometimes that doesn't work right each child's different every single one of them yeah absolutely (laughs) everyone I got 10 and I haven't figured it out yet so I think they that half the battle is just recognizing that none of us know what the fuck we're doing and accepting (laughs) that and going from there (laughs) and if anybody looks like they know what they're doing they've learned it the hard way right I am a completely different parent um, with my younger kids than I was with my older kids. And I really work hard at forgiving myself for the parent I was with my older kids. Mm -hmm. Um, I did everything I did with the very best of intentions, Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes it was still wrong. And it Mm -hmm. would have been totally fine for um, kids without trauma, but kids with trauma need a different type of parenting. So I'm way more relaxed with my younger five or six Right. So, so let's talk about your girls because we've talked about your okay. older group of boys. Now, I always make a joke <laughs> about uh, how when uh, about how bad I am at planning because I say yes. if I if I was good at planning, I wouldn't have five kids. Yes. <laughs> I, and I say I'm the only person I know who can have an accidental adoption. Um, <laughs> but actually, in reality, is I'm not because. You've had a couple of surprise placements too. So, so tell us we, how you got your girls. We we joke about this all the time because um, we were really done at three kids, and right. here we are uh, so seven more children. <laughs> seven more children later. Um, our girls um, were very much an accident. I had gone through um, a health scare and um, had been diagnosed with cancer and had had surgery, and I was sitting at home. Um, three days after I got home from the hospital and the phone rang and it was a friend of mine who was a social worker and she said Jen I'm I hear you're off work which was a bit of a joke (laughs) and she said I have two babies sitting here in my office that um, we have no homes for them to go to the foster they were desperate they were very short of foster homes for people who could take infants and um, she said I don't 
want to separate them, but I'm going to have to, or I have to send them out of the community. She goes, would you and Shelby, Shelby's my husband, um, be willing to be a short-term resource for these babies? Um, I don't know what came over us. We weren't looking to add any more children. Our youngest at that time was eight. Our oldest was 13. Um, she gave me two ages of these babies, which were wrong. And um, three hours later, they showed up at my doorstep um, with two babies, one bottle each, no car seats, no cribs. And um, I put word out on Facebook that we had ended up with these two baby girls to foster. I remember and, those posts. <laughs> yeah, because everybody was in shock as much as me because my life had been in, you know, a fairly tumultuous state with a right. sudden cancer diagnosis and um, surgery. And anyway, needless to say, um, Taya and Jade are our daughters, and they were full biological siblings that were 10 months apart in age. And in the eight weeks prior to coming to me, and that's how old Jade was, they had been in seven different homes wow. as they had bounced around um, trying to find them a placement. So we so we ended up accidentally fostering, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, two weeks later, the social worker called back, and um, she knew me quite well and very clearly said, well, it might not have been as quick of a situation as I initially expressed, so you might want (laughs) to... It um, never is, is it? (laughs) It never is, no. And that was in May, and and I was going planning on going back to work in September and she said you may want to look at getting daycare set up for when you go back to work in September (laughs) and I'm like daycare in September you had said that this was a short-term placement and anyway needless to say by November of that year um, their biological parents um, had requested that we adopt them so it was a slightly complicated situation I um, neither my husband or I are um, indigenous um, and have legal status in that regard and our daughters are indigenous and um so there, it was a lengthy legal process as we went through um through the system mm-hmm. um there were no available indigenous homes um and at the end of the day the kid the girls um became legally ours um about a year after placement and you had you had um the band approval correct uh we not or was so that the next one that you had with to the get? First band, okay. um, with the first band, with the first two girls, when they're, so this is where our accidental adoption comes up. Right. Um, four years later, when their sister was born, um, we, by that point, we had really established a strong relationship with the band, and um, they were fully on board um, for her placement, and she was placed with us right at birth, so... Right. And actually, today, the day of this interview, is our five-year anniversary of her oh, adoption. Okay. So. Now, could you kind of tell people, when when you say you're involved with their community, um, I know you take them to camp and to the gatherings. Can you kind of overview what that looks like? Because this is why, <laughs> when, I, when I tell people that they need to keep their Native or Indigenous children involved with their community, these are the things I'm talking about. Not, okay. a, not a history video from PBS. <laughs> well, I, I actually started um, when we first fostered um, the girls. So when our older two girls were first placed with us, I met with their mother and father and grandmother and aunts and uncles and I asked them to teach me what was important to them Mm -hmm. about their culture and so they were um, quite willing 
to um, invite me to their home, for example, and um, they provided some traditional foods to the kids. And I was willing to just shut up and listen a good portion of the time. I also enrolled um, in university um, at our local college that they were having a language class Mm -hmm. um, in my girl's traditional language, which is um, Chilcotin. And I was able to take a beginner language class. I was the only non-Indigenous person in the class. Um, I was the only one who didn't have native speakers at home. Mm-hmm. And um, I just kind of put myself out there. I wanted to learn. I That's wanted cool. to learn at least the basics so that we could um, talk to the girls at home. And because I was willing, um, I really was um, taken under wing by the instructor and some other of women in the class who were willing to help support me learning protocols and um, and some of the language with the kiddos. I spent a lot of time just showing up. So if there was a gathering in their community or a funeral or a um, even a wedding, whatever mm-hmm. was um, going on, we, we attended as much as we possibly could. The, the fact that I was present with the kids um, made a huge impact. And the more I showed up, um, the more people trusted that I would show up. And we started this not because we intended to adopt the girls. We started this because we were fostering the girls and the plan was for them to go home. And when they went back, I wanted them to still feel very much at home in their home community. Right. When the choice was made, um, that the girls would be adopted by us, those relationships um, were valuable and important and we just worked to maintain them. Um, we, you know, developed really strong relationships with some of the healthy family members. My my kids are, um, you know, still very much a part of their extended biological family. We mm-hmm. have, you know, relatives come and stay with us. We go and visit them frequently. Um, we live in a community now about three hours away from where the girls were born. Um, and we're very lucky that they were able to attend an Indigenous immersion school um, and have been embraced by that community as well. So, you know, they're daily educated in language and culture and protocol and, um, you know, those sorts of really important, necessary things to growing up to be strong Indigenous women. That just makes my heart happy. Because <laughs> we well, see I mean, so we much of the opposite. The stuff. We go to right. powwows and they, the girls dance. And I mean, that stuff is just a normal part of our, um, a normal part of our life. And, you know, in the same way when we, with our um, black sons, mm-hmm. we, um, you know, we switched churches so that our pastor would be black. We made it a priority every single year, and we've now attended over 20 years in a row to attend an African heritage cultural camp. You know, the proof is in our our long-term, lifelong right. commitment to raising our kids to be as um, fluent in the culture of their birth and origin as we possibly can. What would you say to these um, transracial adoptive families or the ones seeking to do that that believe it's not their responsibility to do all of these things? Then don't adopt transracially because mm-hmm. when you choose to adopt transracially, it becomes your responsibility. Um, if you do not feel prepared to provide the type of home your child needs in order to grow up to be a strong and healthy adult and somebody who's comfortable in their biological heritage then don't adopt transracially and that is my strong advice if you can't do this sort of thing then don't adopt 
I, I agree with you. I, and I have people even now who, because all of my children are from the same nation, we're all from Choctaw Nation. Um, and so I have people who ask me why it matters that my daughters are also involved in the African-American community. And they say, well, they're Choctaw, so does it matter? Well, of course it matters. For one, I have my younger daughter is phenotypically black. Uh The world is going to see her as a black girl. She needs to understand what that means and be prepared for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's simply not. I I, I feel like it's abusive for parents to try to do this, pretend this isn't an issue and and not prepare their children. It is emotionally abusive. I mean, that that is my perspective as well. Like, you can't do any reading um you can't immerse yourself in any circle and not find um adult adoptees who were denied this experience and have found it to be an ongoing trauma a trauma that is worse than the trauma that happened before they were they were adopted right so we you know for me i was entrusted with these children but i was entrusted with them um to parent them completely and part of that is of course um, their racial heritage uh, you know they their experience um, is very diverse like I look at my my children my um, my First Nations are indigenous kids who are very very comfortable within black circles as well because mm-hmm. they have um, black siblings and Nigerian extended family and they move quite fluently into those circles as well um, but they also um, you know, they also have white parents, so they, they can move quite fluently in, in those circles, but they know at the very heart and soul of themselves that they are Indigenous women and mm-hmm. what that means to grow up as an Indigenous woman and how to interact with the world who will view them not as being the children of white parents or right. the siblings of black brothers, but they are, will be viewed purely when they're outside of my embrace as being native children and they have to have the skill set to be um indigenous and all of that what goes with that so tell us about the uh the camp that you guys go to every year well we go to a couple but the the one that's for the transracial adoption adoptive families okay i had no idea how to say it so (laughs) (laughs) the harambe cultural society is um was started about 25 years ago on the west coast of Canada to support families who at the time it was just specifically geared to supporting families who were adopting children of African heritage from anywhere in the world so mm-hmm. Haitian children or African children from the African continent or um, black American children it was a place for you know it started with just four or five adoptive families to get together and has grown exponentially um the last several years we've had more than 500 people attend the camp um, and it's a week-long um, family camp where families of the only requirement really to attend is that you have a child in your home um, that's of African heritage so you can be a biological family with black kids you mm-hmm. can be um, uh, a mm-hmm. biracial family uh, there's you know lots of different families that come most of the families have some connection to adoption but uh we have a couple of black families that come to camp that have white and indigenous adopted children as well so you know it's a it's a different it's a different makeup but it has been without a doubt the most important 
week of our year for my children. And, you know, you know, what's a surefire sign of that is, you know, my kids are now in their 20s. They're, you know, university students, they're working, and they still make it a priority to come to Harambe um, in the middle of the summer every year. Oh, that's amazing. So that shows me how important it was. Right. That's incredible. Yeah, it, it really is. They, they bring in um, teachers, psychologists to do classes. Um, my son and I were able to lead a class um, this past summer talking about the racial development of white people and the racial development of black youth and particularly how it's impacted when you're in a white home. And amazing that we can begin to do those sorts of things together. Yes, you know? I was really wishing I could hear what he had to say on that, actually. Yeah, I know. It wasn't recorded, and I wish it uh, would have been. because. But we are hoping to do it again, so hopefully it will be recorded in the future. Good. What are his basic thoughts on... I, I'm sure he gets questioned about this a lot, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Um, for him, what was a really interesting experience... Um, and I have, you know, my boys are full biological siblings. Mm -hmm. They had the same foster home, and they have completely different perspectives on um, almost everything. <laughs> <laughs> and they, um, so my oldest son, Greg, is very introspective mm -hmm. and a deep thinker and has always been exceptionally aware of race and racism and um, what it meant for him to be a black man and what it meant for him being a black man in a white family mm -hmm. and has spent a lot of time thinking about that. And it's reflective in the fact that he's choosing to get his degree in sociology yes. um, as well because that is something that appeals to him deeply. And when he left our home and community um, to go to university, he very consciously immersed himself into an all-black space. So he chose to, um, he dropped most of his white friends, he developed an all-black, an all-African predominantly peer group, uh, he attended an all-black church, he did all of those things as part of his racial development, and it was for the very first time for him, the, the reality that he was just Greg, right. um, and not Greg a black adoptee in a white family or right. Greg is a black hockey player because he was often the only black hockey player in his you know space and um, a very interesting impact on his um, racial development so he says that he's still in the middle of he hasn't reached the end of his racial development which is pretty normal and age-appropriate right. um, but he's able to talk about his own experiences and you know the things that no matter how hard I tried I couldn't mitigate you know we did our best and he can see that we did try and we tried mm -hmm. very hard but it certainly wasn't enough to erase what was his daily experience right my, we talk about about it a lot in our house you know because kids at school you right. know oh my goodness uh the the 10 year old is having such a tr trouble with these little kids touching her hair without her consent so i'm yeah. expecting to be called up there for a fight at some point in the next few weeks um <laughs> Yeah. Um, and but yeah, she was getting questioned pretty heavily last week about how can you be black and your brother is white because my youngest son looks like his father who is white. He's very fair skinned. He has blonde hair. Right. And yeah, so we have we we have this conversation a lot. 
about because people think they should say whatever comes in their head to children. <laughs> and it's not just yeah. it's not just other children. Adults say wildly inappropriate things to our families all the time. All the time. And we um, we really developed the skill set of saying wildly inappropriate things back. I do that, um, and I get criticized for that a lot. <laughs> but I say, I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> no, it, 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 it is in our family one of the um, greatest um, ongoing family jokes of mm-hmm. some of the absolutely atrocious always said in jest but ridiculous things we've said in return i mean my my third son who is our biological child is also blonde and blue eyed mm-hmm. looks like he got off the boat from norway and <laughs> um of course is you know was attending the same schools with his black brothers and um people would you know question incessantly in right. high school um why are how is that your brother were you adopted were they adopted who's their birth mom didn't they want them etc cetera, etc cetera. and um mm-hmm. my white son would take some of the pressure off of his brothers by often saying no I was adopted um, from Norway or make up some European country <laughs> and um, our next our next um, youngest son who's also um, biological he would often answer um, you know playing with the idea that um, he didn't know whether or not he was adopted oh. <laughs> and, and people shouldn't talk about it because his parents hadn't told him yet <laughs> just enough to make people really uncomfortable. That's great. And my, my husband, um, who had a family picture of us on his desk, and um, which had two black boys and two white boys, mm-hmm. yeah, obviously, and right. uh, he said he got so tired of uh, men he worked with um, often – he was a shipping agent, so he worked with truckers often. They'd come in and say, oh, have you guys adopted? And um, it was blatantly obvious. And <laughs> he said he got tired of explaining and sometimes would just say, no, but I think my wife cheated on me twice with the oh. same guy. <laughs> See, I would have went the other way. I would have went the other way and said, no, I have two wives. That's why they're all yeah. so close together. <laughs> I guess he could have said that. His secretary used to get a kick out of it because she would just die laughing. She could always hear him saying it. I, I, I think she cheated on me. Oh, I think it's cute, <laughs> though. I love it. I tend to get asked when I have all my children with me because none of my children look alike. Even the right. ones with the same same father that, that are my bios don't look alike. So I get... I have random strangers stop me and ask me how many baby daddies I have. Yep. And so I'll just say, I don't know. I lost count. And I walk away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, what's interesting is um, we also dealt with people overcompensating the other way. Uh-huh. Um, talking about how my, you know, straight off the bo- boat Norwegian looking child looked just like his brother. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, who was African-American. And, you know, people are sometimes uncomfortable with differences and they don't know what to say and they feel like they need to say something. And that can be um, also awkward for kids to deal with. We dealt with a fair amount of um, fawning Mm-hmm. over the children, particularly the boys when they were little, um, like they were some sort of celebrity or <laughs> a puppy on display. Right. And that's, that was also quite difficult. My second son, his approach has always been much more private and not wanting to be noticed mm-hmm. and not wanting to be identified as being different. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was very clear that he didn't want anybody to know he was adopted when people would ask. And, you know, respecting your child's wishes during those times is mm-hmm. so important, you know protecting your kids from both positive and negative attention yes I, I i tell mine constantly this is up to you 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 don't have to you don't owe anybody an explanation you don't have to tell anybody and i'm 
you know, when we're stopped by people, I don't give their story. I let them decide what they want to say. And usually right. it's a flip remark and that's it because we don't owe people an explanation. Right. I, I find now as a um, visibly white woman with indigenous kids, and now I have five that are mm-hmm. 10 and under. Um, <laughs> are you tired? That... That's just that, hearing that makes <laughs> <Some> me tired. <laughs> Some days. And they, I get asked far more frequently now in front of the kids um, if I am a foster parent. Ooh. And that is really tough for, um, number one, because I am a foster parent of two of those children. Right. But also for my kids who are permanent members of the family, there is a hierarchy often in people's lives and how they believe kids belong in a family. And a foster child is um, low on that hierarchy. Right. And so that's a really important um, distinction as well when we are out. I will often say, no, these these are my daughters. And um, because my foster kids call me auntie, I will say, and my niece and nephew. Mm-hmm. And leave it at that. That that my job is not to offer an explanation to somebody who wants to understand why I have these kids with me, but rather that I am constantly reinforcing my child's sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. While still being honest, we talk all the time about what being a foster family means and the process that my kids went through, but that is a a conversation that we have at home or with people that they trust intimately. Right. Not with every random person that thinks they are entitled to know. (laughs) Right, right, because everybody close to us knows, and my girls are getting um, more comfortable talking about, well, my ten- the 10-year-old actually asked about her mother and grandmother at therapy last week, and I know you saw that post, I posted about right. it on Facebook, because I'm like, and I know nobody except for families like ours get why this is a big deal, <laughs> but it was well- huge, because she has spent five years that she moved into my home actively avoiding this topic like would not even when the therapist would try to talk to her about her family she would shut it down and refuse and for her to just out of we were talking about other things and you know they had just gotten back from summer with the grandparents and you know so we're talking about other things and we kind of wrapped that up and the therapist just asks, okay, does anybody have anything else they want to talk about? And she just kind of blurts it out. It's like, amazing. I, wow. I really think there's something to the age as mm-hmm. well. Like my daughter for the very first time, um, who is also 10, mm-hmm. um, we were driving and it always seems to come up at weird times. <laughs> and um, she said, mom, I was just thinking that if my birth mom hadn't have wanted you that I could have been adopted anywhere and that means I could have a totally different life Mm -hmm. and that's a different stage as well right we're all of a sudden understanding that our connection um is by fate and happenstance really you know and and understanding and that's a sense that adoptees have to come to as well right Right. that all these puzzle pieces fell into place to make their life what it was but at any point those puzzle pieces could have been different exactly yeah Yeah, because we were in a similar situation I mean she was uh the older one was fostered by us but then ultimately her she her mother signed guardianship and that's how she became a right. got out of the state system and became a permanent part of our house and if she had not done that she did it because they were going to do a trial reunification and put her back in the home and even her mother knew she was not capable of caring of for her that, at yeah. that time right and so she asked how could she stay with us and so that's what they came to the solution that came to was a guardianship and had she not done that there is no way to know what would have happened to her 
um, because she would have gotten the retrial reunification. Her mother was not in a any capacity to care for her, so that would not have lasted long. Hopefully, she would have come out of it safely, who knows, and then pl- been placed somewhere else. And then her uh, sister probably would have been lost to her later. And my, my girls have the same reality because they have older siblings mm-hmm. um, that we have contact with that have had different experiences mm-hmm. than them. So, um, you know, with one of their older brothers, uh, he has been permanently raised in foster care in an extended family mm-hmm. home of his biological father, which is different than my girl's biological okay. father. And they have seen the impact on him. He's now... Um, in mid-adolescence of never having permanency. Mm -hmm. He's um, never really known what was going to happen in his life. And, you know, another younger sibling um, was placed at birth um, into his family, and he wasn't told he was adopted until he was 10 or 11. And they've seen the impact on, they knew he was their brother before he knew that they were his sisters. And, uh, you know, the impact of that as well. Um, additionally, there's some siblings that have been adopted out into different families that refuse all contact. So, you know, there's a variety of experiences that they've right. witnessed. Plus, with us being a foster family, they, they're beginning to get a greater understanding of what can happen and right. um, an appreciation for what didn't. Mm-hmm. How many total have you fostered? Do you have a count? <laughs> Because I know there have been some that have been in and moved out. So do you know how many there have been? (laughs) I think we're over 20. I'm not totally sure the numbers. It seems to be that most kids that come don't leave. Um, We certainly have, (laughs) um, you know, as as you're aware, because I posted it on Facebook, Mm -hmm. we just this past week had um, a 12-and-a-half-year-old who was with us the first year of her life. And she was with us for a week. Mm-hmm. And um, after this interview this morning, I'm going to pick up another former foster child, and her and I are going out for the day together. Yeah. And so, you know, we once you're part of my family, you're always part of my family. Mm-hmm. So we've maintained contact with um, about 99% of the kids that we've had in our homes. Oh, that's amazing. I, I think that's it's so a, important for the for kids. Yeah, if it if it is at all possible, um, that is what I want. And I've you know I've had I've dealt with some really complicated parents, um, you know, really really complicated parents, and we've still managed to um, work out positive communication and positive relationships. So you know, if if at all possible, that is my goal. So how many more are there going to be, Jen? <laughs> oh dear Lord, I hope we're done. <laughs> the uh, I've lost count husband. at this point at how many times. Jenna said no more <laughs> and, I, and more know, came have, in <laughs> I really you know what's funny is we finalize our adoption of our 14 year old who joined us when he was 11 and if you would have ever asked me if I would have adopted a child in that age category I would have never right. ever ever believed it was possible but at this point um we're full up here um they don't allow you normally to have more than six children in a home if you're fostering and so mm-hmm. we have a waiver in order to have seven right. because our two foster kiddos um our biological cousins of our um, daughters Mm -hmm. and in order to keep them together we were able to get a waiver but our you know for now I I sort of feel like our permanent family is done 10 well eight kids that are permanently ours are a lot of kids right (laughs) um, you know I've been parenting you know I, I joked about it yesterday is my youngest five started school and this is the first fall for me in 22 years where I haven't had a child at home and, you know, there's different phases of people's lives. I'd be happy if I wasn't taking in more babies right? in this next phase. 
<laughs> and I'm going to say that, and of course that means I'm going to get a call. But, of course. Um, and I've said no many times, and, uh, you know, we seem to perpetually say no and then still change our minds and end up adopting the kids. Right? If a child is in our home and they end up needing us, they stay. I understand. You can't say no. I mean, that's how I accidentally got <laughs> the last one was, right. you know, we were doing sibling visits. Yeah. She had... Uh, um, she had been in a foster home for six months. I found out because I get in everybody's business. Um, <laughs> mostly because what I do is I kind of keep track of the, of their family, just in case they ever do want contact, you know, and kind of know what's going on. Um, it's a small town down there um, because they have relocated down to, <laughs> because there was a complication when, when the second baby was born and she moved down there near where my where I'm from and where my parents live and so it's extremely small town there's like eight people and <laughs> so anytime somebody gets arrested or somebody gets into a fight or something I get text messages from everybody you know this is what happened with you know the, whatever family members so I you know kind of know so I found out kind of randomly that her grandmother who she'd been living with had gotten arrested and the charge was um domestic violence so I knew that meant they would have taken her into care right and so then my question was so where is she because that was six months ago so I called the nation and they had not been informed they had not been notified which is contrary to federal law and so but they were able to track her down and find her in the home she was in so we started doing sibling visits to keep the girls together because they hadn't seen each other at this point in about three years because they had done visits before up through the time she was a toddler. But then when she went to the care of her grandmother, then they moved several hours away. And so we weren't able to visit anymore. So we started doing just sibling visits, thinking this was going to, you know, that was what it was going to be. She was settled in this home. That would be fine. And then <laughs> they, I guess, the reason the tribe hadn't been informed, according to the foster parents that they, she was living with at the time, they told me that their, the caseworker promised them an adoption and said that they would not notify the tribe until the child had been with them for after after a child's been with you for a year and then you can file for de facto parenting status and right. and oppose any movement move of the child and so they hid that this child was in care from her nation to try to get give them time to do that so that they could challenge it and get an adoption now mind you her mother had not even been informed at this point that she was in care so she had been in, in care for six months, but mother hasn't been informed yet, let alone given her plan to work or anything. So we are miles away from talking adoptions. They shouldn't be guaranteeing yeah. them. So when well, the and I think often, mm -hmm. uh, often workers will tell you what you want to hear. Yes. In order to get you to agree to a placement. Right. right. I mean, that's the reality. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what was happening. And because she had been in the shelter and they wanted her out of the shelter as quickly as possible. So in order to get them to agree to a placement, they didn't really want to foster. They wanted to just adopt. And so uh -huh. in order to get them to accept placement, they promised them this adoption. 
And so then when the tribe gets informed and they um, get involved as they should, they didn't say you won't be able to adopt. What they said is we can't guarantee that. Her mother doesn't even know she's in care yet. So we're so far away from that. I can't make any promises one way or the other. And that upset them. And so they were basically like, then if you might take her later, take her now. And so she was supposed to be coming to me for her first weekend visit and overnight staying at the house. And she came with all her stuff. And she'd never left. <laughs> so, yeah. because her mother wasn't able to work her plan, and so eventually rights were terminated and she was adopted. So, it's, um, you know, when we've made these decisions and we've talked about it, because, you know, even with our girls, if mm-hmm. they're the girls by the time that we were beginning to discuss permanency had been with us five months, and I love them as much as I had ever loved any child. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that time, like, we, we looked at each other and, and said, if there is a suitable um, same race placement, we would have supported that. Right. And, you know, with my foster kiddos now, they've been with us almost a year and a half. And we're having that same discussion because now their attachment and their capacity to, with, um, to survive another trauma of loss mm-hmm. um, becomes less and less. Right. right. Mm-hmm. So we've been the, you know, the, the strong voice advocating for these kids if there is an in-family placement is if there is a, uh, a viable placement for these kids it needs to happen sooner rather than later and if right. not then we are going to fight to keep them because at some point the child's needs supersede the child's needs to be able to you know attachment and, tra- and withstanding more trauma um, become so significant right and that's why but it's, a, it's a very difficult balance you know? it, is, it really and, is and that's why I didn't ask to move her and when uh-huh. we first found her because she had been there six months and she seemed to be doing fine. So I said, it's better to keep the connection and let her stay where she's at than cause another trauma of moving. Unfortunately, that decision was out of my hands ultimately. But, um, and that's also why I try to express to people so much the importance of fostering because a lot of our tribes have a waiting list of people willing to adopt, but they're reluctant to foster well, these children are in foster care for an extended period of time before they become ready to adopt. Well, at that point, it may or may not be okay. It may or may not be appropriate to move them depending on the child's situation. And I, and I need people to understand that and start fostering instead of just adopting. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, I, I get it. It, mm-hmm. it is hard. It like is it hard. is gut wrenching, rip your soul out. Think, um, think you might die from grief, <laughs> gut wrenching, yes. but it is also worth it mm-hmm. to have loved a child and, um, been able to provide them stability and a sense of family and celebrate that a family, um, is being put back together at the end of the day. There is pain and loss in fostering, but there's also great love and that's a significant part of it. And if you can't go into fostering with that understanding, then, right. then don't, don't foster. Do and that's where we see the awful situations of, um, you know, parents, foster parents fighting biological parents or extended family right. or bands mm-hmm. um, when they should be supporting and empowering the child um, moving forward. But it's a, it's, it is emotionally difficult. Well, thank you, Jen, for talking to us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You can contact the podcast at brokebrokenpodcast at gmail.com. The Broken Broken Podcast can be found on Twitter at Broke Broken Show, on Instagram and Facebook at Broke Broken Podcast.